Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hi, and welcome back for part two. We've never done that before. I feel like we had to have a real serious intro. Hello. And welcome back to part two of the War on Terror for Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Is that your NPR voice? Because it kind of sounds scary every once in a while i turn on my npr voice for you all we're here to talk about the war on terror you were also making very intense eye contact which (laughs) was very nerve-wracking for me personally hi very uncomfortable right now (laughs) we always get a little silly after doing the mini okay yes this is our first ever two-parter we just spent like three minutes before pressing record. Like, where the fuck were we? Where do we leave? Where off? are we going? Like, I feel like so you all know if you've listened, you know, I love the show True Crime Obsessed. And when they do their two parters, I think they do it in one day. And they oh, yeah. Keep going. Mm-hmm. I think most but people do that. It's been a week for us. It's been a week. So I was like, where? What did we talk about last week? Where are we going? So luckily, Keegan and I were able to uh, put our noggins together and figure it out. So we repeat a few things. We apologize. It is not as fresh in our minds as we would like it to be with the part one, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. We do what we want. (laughs) (laughs) I think we kind of left off in the days after 9-11 whenever Bush had made it very clear that we were going to war. The AUMF had passed at this time, uh, which basically gave him blanket authority to start the war on terror do um, what he wanted to do yeah and there was only one dissenting voice our lovely miss barbara lee was yep. the only dissenting voice uh, who didn't think that maybe this was the best idea barbara lee dm us i mean <laughs> listen we have your back although i do feel like she's she's made statements recently talking about how she does feel vindicated i mean there's no joy in no, being vindi- right but, but vindication i think isn't necessarily stating joy it's just saying like i told you so yeah i mean this could have been avoided if you yeah, just listen to usually me. when you say i told you so something good didn't happen right so exactly you know so We kind of left off after 9-11, so we wanted to start this episode talking about kind of the things that changed in the States after 9-11, because I feel like we mentioned this on the last episode, there's a whole generation now of people who didn't grow up in a time before. Yes. Right? So they don't know a time when you didn't have to take off your shoes to go to the airport. Well, that's actually the first thing that I want to talk about because I think that then we'll get into more of, you know, the political changes and things like that. But let's talk a little bit about airport security changes. So prior to September 11th, 2001, airport screening was provided by private security companies contracted by the airliner airport. It wasn't a TSA, like a national kind of thing. It was just each airport or airline had its own way of doing things. Um, The TSA, which is the Transportation Security Administration, was introduced to take over all the security functions. And with that, they put in 
bulletproof and locked cockpit doors, which became standard on commercial passenger planes. Because as you remember, uh, what was it? Is it flight 178? Was it? I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. That The the one that crashed in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. because the passengers were able I feel like to- that was United 93. I only remember that because there was a movie called United 93. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, so Because they were able to, you know, kind of try to infiltrate. The hijackers were able to take over the plane. So they wanted to make sure that the cockpits were... Uh, more heavily secured. I can't say cockpit without wanting to wow. laugh. Madigan, you're 29. Cockpit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cockpit is funny. It's a funny thing to say. Uh, some planes are also equipped with CCTV cameras so the pilots can monitor passenger activity. And pilots are now allowed to car- carry firearms, but they must be trained and licensed. And then also air marshals became more of a common thing. If any of you have seen Bridesmaids, mm-hmm. uh, Melissa McCarthy's character is sitting next to her real life husband and she's like convinced that he's an air marshal. And he's like, no, I'm not. And this whole thing. Um that became much more common on just regular passenger flights to have an air marshal there. And it really is weird to think about, you know, when I was a kid up until I was nine, I would have people who dropped me off at the airport. Like, I mean, obviously with my family, they could walk me all the way to my gate oh, yeah. and, I mean, and wave at me from the plane. Wave from was, the window. That was yeah. very, very common. And especially since, I mean, my mom put me and my brother on planes alone when yeah. we were like seven and eight yeah you know and so to do that to feel comfortable as a parent yeah they let the parent walk right through security with you and walk yeah. you all the way up and put you on the plane themselves which I think now there are still ways to do that but I know there's also like babysitters that you can like pay to right have, like take your you kids. hand your kid off to yeah. a stewardess or something yeah. like that it is really funny to watch like uh we're both big friends fans so I always remember the episode where Chandler says he's going to Yemen yeah. And Janice like follows him all the way to the gate. And he's like, I guess I'm going to Yemen. Yeah. Chandler could have gotten away n- nowadays. Yeah. You nowadays know I mean? he would have dipped like, out after security. He could have just like pretended to be in the security line for like two seconds and then dipped out. And Janice would have been none the wiser. Yeah. Same thing with the episode where Emily sees them, sees Ross <gasps> and Rachel, Rachel get on the plane yes. going to Greece. Never would have happened. Never would have happened. Never would have so happened. many issues could have been avoided. Yep. Uh, oh so many gosh. friends related scenarios <laughs> could have been but, avoided. But it really is a weird thing to think about because there are so many things that we go through. You know, you got to take your shoes off and your belts and you're this and you're that. And then also the full body mm-hmm. scanners were not a thing. Yeah. Do you remember the controversy over that when yes. it first became a thing? Yes. There was a big thing about it being too invasive and like, you know, there's are no one your thinks naked about it. body. Nobody thinks about it. Nobody thinks twice, but it was a huge, huge deal. It was like a huge invasion of privacy and all of this kind of stuff where now everybody knows to, you know, put your arms up and your legs spread and let the thing go. Right. I mean, if you're on a plane enough, which I have been kind of lately, like, you know, the whole drill. It's like the hair goes up. The shoes are off before I'm even like up there. Yeah. My two laptops are out and they're in individual containers, you know? Yeah. But the reasons why they decided to make a lot of these changes and the reasons why there's also like no fly lists and things like that, they're far more strict about who comes in and out of the country. Yeah. In part, it's because in the year before 9-11, there was a miscommunication or a lack of communication between the CIA and the FBI and it failed to alert them that people who they knew were closely tied to Al-Qaeda 
had come into the country, right? So mm. the CIA knew that these people had come into the country, right? But they they like missed the handoff Ugh. to to give that information to the FBI. Right. So in the days after 9-11, people were like, how could these people have well, been they, living here they under even, our noses? And you they know? set off the metal detectors. That's the thing. Like there were metal detectors still in airports. And I, I guess it says that on the morning of 9-11, the hijackers all set off metal detectors, but were still able to pass through. And so because right. of that, security personnel is now more thoroughly trained to detect weapons and explosives. That's when all the sizes changed for what you could bring. You know, you could only bring a little right. bit of shampoo and a little bit of that because you can have liquid explosives. Explosives. But yeah. It is my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, that they set off the metal detectors, but when they were searched, the hijackers had brought with them short-bladed knives. Yes. Which at the time were allowed on planes. Yes, exactly. Like, it wasn't like... Nowadays, I was in San Francisco, coming back from San Francisco to Los Angeles, uh-huh. and I had one of those, like, little pocket knives. Yeah. That, like, had that, like, tiny, like... I don't know, like itty bitty. Was it like file. one of those that also has like a nail clipper and a yeah, and like a, that. and a screw, like yeah. a like a teeny tiny yeah, corkscrew that like all encompassing little things you can stick in your pocket. That tiny corkscrew could not open a bottle of wine. They're like, let's be real. I don't understand why that's in there. Yeah, quick fact: my dad never wore a pair of pants that didn't have one of those in the pocket. He had one of those little what are they called? The little pocket knives. They're like Swiss Army knives, but yeah. they're tiny, tiny ones. But that also has the file and the this mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Like my dad never went anywhere without one of. Those those in his pants pocket so if you ever needed anything my dad was like Shh, and ready. like the one I had in San Francisco couldn't have done anything like it literally that little file you could have broken it in half if you yeah. wanted it was one of those novelty ones that was probably given to me at like some event you know right um but it was confiscated right and yeah. that thing couldn't have done any damage but these hijackers specifically uh the ones who were on the plane that hit the pentagon uh-huh. they had these short bladed knives on them and they were allowed on planes it wasn't something that people were concerned about because we didn't think of it in terms of political motives like no, we were just yeah. like eh Stuff happens on planes, people act out, but we always thought about it as kind of like one-off instances. We didn't think about it as an organized event that could happen. Yeah, like hijackings are not uncommon. If any of you are interested, go watch the D.B. Cooper documentary on HBO. Holy shit. Yeah, there was a period of time where hijacks were pretty commonplace, like in the 70s. But it's really funny. But no one got hurt either. In that documentary, they say it's like it was usually just like Cuban internationals that wanted to go home. You get a bottle of rum, some cigars, and you just have like essentially an extra layover. And and everyone got home fine. Weren't scared. Yeah. You know, in the 70s, you know, by the time I mean, then you could smoke on planes and stewardesses were treated horribly. It was a whole thing. Um, So they put all these things in place essentially to try and prevent people from being able to enter the country um, or hijack planes. But if they... If they were able to capture somebody they suspected of having information, they also wanted to figure out like how best to gather the information in order to find these people and then how best to question them. And so a lot of things happened after 9-11 in addition to like security uh, that was put into place. In addition to military efforts, there was also an increased effort domestically to prevent future attacks. Yeah. And so... That kind of led us into the Patriot Act. 
There was a lot of talk about the Patriot Act whenever I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, this was a hotly debated topic even then. Again, my family was so pro do whatever you got to do to protect America. Right. That I feel like it wasn't something that was controversial in my house. But upon kind of taking a closer look at it as an adult, it's a very scary thing. So yeah. It was passed 45 days after the September 11th attacks, and it was passed in the name of national security. So the Patriot Act was the first of many changes to surveillance laws that made it easier for the government to spy on regular, ordinary Americans by expanding the authority to monitor phone and email communications, collect bank and credit card uh, report records, and track the activity of Innocent Americans. So Americans that you have no real evidence that right. you might have a suspicion. Somebody may have called in and said, you see something, say something, right? Someone yeah. might have called in and said, hey, I suspect Madigan of this thing. And mm-hmm. the government would have the right then to look at your credit card statements, look at your phone calls, read your emails. Yeah. They could go so far as to go into your house what was called the sneak and peek warrants, which was basically that allowed the government to go into your home and leave without informing you that they were there. Oh my gosh. They could go into your home. They could take whatever they wanted. They didn't have to inform you that they were there and there would be no paper trail of the fact that this is something that happened. Okay. That to me, everything else is like sketchy. Yes. I kind of understand it in a way, but then at the same time, I don't trust the government at all, though. But that's the thing is, like, I think that's coming from privilege on my part, because I think that for Muslim Americans or anybody that has maybe a little bit of a different name or multiple countries on their passports, that's when that invasion of privacy is going to be scary. Because to me, I'm like, Okay, well, I'm I'm not really worried about what the government is going to find and say about me. But like I said, I think that's coming from like a very, very privileged perspective. But at the same time, it's like I am for surveillance in so many ways for so many reasons, which is why it's kind of a complicated thing in my head. See, for me, um, knowing about Cointelpro, knowing about what the FBI has done, what the FBI did to the Black Panthers, what the FBI did to Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, I don't trust them with this level of it just kind of being a free for all and allowing you to do whatever you want. Totally. It's it's very scary because it's a very slippery slope in terms of what they will use it for. Right. Like if they were using it strictly for this one thing, then it's like, eh, maybe because again, it's like myself personally, something else or, you know, and again, like, and we're going to get into this, but absolutely. It was so easy to profile people. And we're right. in a we're in a post 11 a post a post 911 world yeah. where the country is extremely paranoid and right. islamophobic. Well, but that's and what I'm saying is like I realize the fact that like the reason I think that is because I am a white woman. Like I'm pro- my chances of being profiled for someone in the government is very very slim. You know what right. I mean? And so for no so for me it's like I, that's how I've always felt, but I really do think that it's because I don't I haven't had to live with that fear of right. being profiled. There there has to be strict 
protections in place 100 um, to yeah. avoid some of this because there were even people who were working in national security at the time who were like you can't do this like this is an insane overreach because things got really fast and loose really quickly like we yeah. were living in a digital age and it was hard to parse through what information warranted being taken and from whom so the government basically made deals with tech companies like at&t and verizon and they Shitty. just took all of the information they yeah. just took it all and they were like take it all from everybody and we'll figure it out later because see, is- that's the thing like if there's an investigation you think about you know getting warrants for phone records and all this kind of stuff and i feel like the reason that we have all of that is to protect citizens like you have to get a warrant to search somebody's home a police officer can't just come in you right know, it was a violation of our fourth amendment rights like right. there there are rights there that are rights to privacy there has to be steps taken mm-hmm. before you immediately take information and on you someone have else. to be able to have a reasonable suspicion yes. and a reasonable suspicion like, goes beyond evidence. a feeling right like you right. can't just be like mm, this person gives me bad vibes but that's like what a warrant is like you have to go to a judge and exactly you have to say we're looking for these specific things for this specific reason and it has to be very very specific signed off by a judge then you can go and search the house and we know that those things get abused all the time as well so True. Like, this being this like just open-ended. completely open-ended yeah and by the way it's still in effect like the patriot act is technically still in effect even it's though probably what all of our terms of agreement say is like all of this information will be sent to the u.s government i mean it's it's really insane because president bush or former president george w bush he gave a speech in 2005 where he said that the patriot act had been used to bring charges against more than 400 suspects more than half of whom had been convi- had been convicted meanwhile the aclu quoted the justice department figures showing that 7000 people had complained of abuse of the act so there had been like 400 suspects half of whom, so 200 people, had been convicted of something. What? Yeah. We don't know. And also, we don't know if he's telling the truth because the Bush administration had a habit of lying. Yeah. Uh, but the ACLU is saying, hey, there have been 7,000 complaints of overreach Yeah. due to this act, right? right. So, so it's just let's, like, like do, fucking does, do something about it. Do the ends justify the means? No. You know what I mean? Like, and And again, the majority of the people who were victimized by this were... Muslim Americans. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about Islamophobia in the United States post 9-11. So I copy pasted this quote. I don't remember from where because I didn't cite it underneath. Silly me. But it says, in orchestrating the attacks on September 11th, 2001, Osama bin Laden had wanted to end the global reign of a decadent West, inflict a staggering blow to the American democracy, and entangle every Muslim in the conflict. Bin Laden may be dead, but it is hard not to conclude that he got what he wanted. And I think that is really poignant because I think that Osama bin Laden had this goal of exposing the West for all of its ways that it's bad and damaging and kind of pitting this war between the West and Al-Qaeda, Muslim people, and all of these other things that he saw as making them othered. And I think that that's where he really succeeded in kind of bringing out the worst in the U.S. in that sense. It was something that was always there. It's the same kind of thing when we did our model minority episode where it's proximity to whiteness and a seemingly acceptance 
of you by the dominant Anglo culture right. does not necessarily mean you are one of them. And yeah. all it takes is one event or, you know, in, in this case, in the case that we were, we were talking about for that episode, it was um, COVID, right? Yeah. It just takes one precipitating event for the dominant cult- culture to highlight to you that you are not like them, yeah. that you are other from them, um, and they can take that back at any time. Your yeah. Americanness, they can withdraw that at any time. But they still want to, you know, use all the wonderful things that you've brought into right, the country right. and all this other stuff. It, it doesn't matter that, like, you were born in the United States. Right. It doesn't matter if you were from the country, right? It didn't matter. It wasn't just um, people from Afghanistan who were being persecuted, which would be fucked up anyway well and I it mean, was any any muslim person and beyond that it was anybody who looked like they could be it right was Sikhs there was were being persecuted so many um I, i'm sorry if i'm not saying this correctly but Sikh people were being yes very very heavily yeah yeah attacked they were this time turbans. even though they had nothing to do with the muslim religion you know what i mean like but it was this idea of anybody you know wearing a turban or a hijab or anything like that was suddenly looked at sideways and questioned because well, and straight up called a terrorist like yes. that was something that was happening all of the time well, I mean, and it's still so frustrating to this day so my friend sean that i had in college that mm-hmm. you know he is from sri lanka and like pretty much all of the roles that he's gotten post-college or what he's been stereotyped as is a terrorist and i have multiple friends who are of the middle eastern descent who you know do extra work and things like that and they're always the terrorist. Oh, and yeah. it's so upsetting. Yeah. Actually, one of my friends was on that show. What was the Hulu show? Oh, I can't remember what it was called, but he was, um, he's from the Middle East. He's from uh, Syria, I believe. And he, it was like a really big Hulu show and it was his first like big role ever. And he, played a terrorist but he was like this is the one time I'm like cool with it because he was like a main role you know what I mean no, but that's but it's fucked still, up like, it's still totally fucked it's, up it's, it, like again we need to stay on on task yes. so I don't want to like go off we won't on go a tangent, into casting and all that kind of stuff but, but what I'm I saying do think, is that there's this generalization of it you know it is that part of United States culture especially as somebody who is an, a non-white actor is so fucked up and so detrimental and yeah. something that we really need to take a close look at. Yeah. Uh, We've because- been having like casting like issues on our list for a really long time of episodes to, you know, episode discussions to talk about. But it, it goes to show, I mean, when you look at the way that things are cast, it kind of shows how America thinks of certain groups of people. So I think that, you know, my friend Sean is not Muslim. He is a Catholic kid from Sri Lanka yet he is going to be typecast as a terrorist for performance use and probably in real life as well and well, that's the yeah. thing where it kind of imitates it happened for life. me and my brother as well because we are biracial we're half black and we're half white but because of our features like we both have kind of like straight long noses yeah we have brown skin my brother grew curly hair curly beard um, those kinds of things that might people be didn't know typically profiled as right. So people yeah. didn't know. So they would give you double takes, right? Like, and you, we saw it because we were living in a majority white place. That makes me so mad. I, but it was, and if it was like that for us, 
imagine what it was like for people who were actually practicing Muslims, oh. especially in New York City. Yeah. For instance, there was a large controversy that happened. Um, there was a Muslim man who had come over here to the United States um, in hopes of kind of showing people like this hey. is the beauty of the Islamic faith, yeah. right? And kind of wanting to bring people together. And he wanted to create this, uh, what he called the Islamic YMCA. So like a Aww. community center um, specifically for Muslim youth. Yeah. A reminder that the YMCA is actually a Christian organization, whether you remember that or not. And he wanted to create something similar. It was kind of close in proximity to Ground Zero. Okay. It was a few blocks away. Yeah. People lost their fuck minds and the ugliest stuff came out of people saying you're letting the terrorists win by allowing this mosque to be built mm. near ground zero uh you know just the most vile the most islamophobic and uneducated bigoted things yeah and it was all over fox news fox yeah. news got a hold of it to the point that he had to drop the project. Yeah. And when you watch, he speaks on the Turning Point documentary on Netflix. And when you watch him talking about this, you can see that it is something that has truly affected him and has kind of broken his heart. And well, I cannot he was imagine trying to do something that was going to help his community, but also to help America kind of see another side of Islamic people. And you know, I think about even, you know, Malcolm X and things like that who were part of that religion that have always been seen as like hyper radicalized. And I think that, you know, having a place like a YMCA was such a great idea to be able to kind of like educate, normalize, have a sense of community. A place where all people were welcome together. Exactly. Because, yeah. and it's such a harmless idea that it's so upsetting to me that he wasn't able to follow through with that. And, Beyond just him, who you could see on a personal level, it was very difficult and painful for him. Right. The number of people, I think about young people, I think about people who are my age, who yeah. maybe at that time who were, grew up were that way. in their early teens, right? Constantly seeing, you're, you turn on the TV and you have these people saying, Muslims are terrorists and we can't have a mosque being built anywhere near uh, Ground, Zero. Ground Zero. It's disrespectful to the people that died. You know, what does that say about you? Yeah. What does that make you think about yourself? Mm, right? Yeah. And like, w what kind of abuse are you and your family suffering? What have you suffered? Yeah. Because of something that had nothing to do with you. Right. And the numbers really are astronomical. So in 2000, the year before the attacks, there were 28 recorded hate crimes against Muslim people. In 2001, that number reached 481. That were reported. That were reported. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I'm sure there were above 28 in 2000 as well, but I mean, 28 to 481 reported yeah. cases Yeah. in a year? Yeah. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I can't imagine it's, it. I, mean, I, I, can, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine being... Like, I, I, I know how, like, traumatized I was by that situation. I can't imagine how Muslim children felt during that time in the U.S. The only thing I can think of is the absolute fear and grief that I felt last summer. Yeah. And that I have felt many times over in the wake of police violence and brutality against black Americans or 
the way that I feel whenever I look back on certain Im- like instances in the civil yeah. rights movement and the way that that makes me feel knowing that these are people who look like me, who are like me. I can't and and I say I say all of that and I still say I cannot imagine this specific situation because right. it was such a grand scale and it felt like everybody in the world, you know, like last episode we talked about how people who didn't live through it can't fathom the unity that happened during that time. That's true, except for if you were a Muslim American. And so you're witnessing this profound, powerful hate unity. Yeah. And being on the outside of it. Yeah. And being on the outside of it was hate. Like it was hate. It was us versus them. And they're seeing the entire fucking country. Yeah. Come together. And what, it would feel like to me is is against you. Yeah. You know, and also having those conflicting feelings of being an American and, and having that grief that we felt, right? Like, right. That and your they want to be able to feel that too, right. you but they're not it. allowed to because of their religion or the way they look or the way they're treated by you, other people. Because, because you feel like you're being pushed on, uh, in, like I just, the conflicting feelings of being an American and wanting to process what just happened yeah. and also feeling like the world is saying this is your fault. Yeah. I can't, imagine it really I mean being an adult now and thinking back on it the way that we attacked a religious group as a whole makes absolutely no sense to me and just people who looked a certain way as well you know but I mean to to specifically say that like Muslim people are people that we should be feared it's just the most uneducated response is a lack of knowledge of the religion. It's a lack of knowledge about whether or not they are radicalized or not. Al-Qaeda is not the Muslim religion. And I feel like a lot of what I was told as a child, even though I had wonderful parents who steered me in another direction, I feel like a lot of what was being inundated upon me was that anybody who looked that way is someone to be feared. And it wasn't because of the knowledge of what the religion really was, which is incredibly peaceful, but it was skewed in a way of that the religion is violent. And that was what the media was portraying is that if you are Muslim, you are being taught violent ideologies. Mm-hmm. And that was, is what was so damaging. I think to that whole generation coming up and hearing these things and taking it as fact and yeah. truth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, it was kind of a high and mighty stance for us to have when let's go into our next talking point here. Yes. So not long after the nine 11 attacks, we started offering large bounties to anyone who would turn in people who were suspected of being involved with Al Qaeda right. uh, or the Taliban in any way, if they were adjacent in any way to what happened on nine 11 or connected in any way. Yeah. So we started dropping leaflets from airplanes over Afghanistan saying, that people would be rewarded not only with cash, but also with food and other incentives. So we were saying, we were dropping these leaflets that were saying, you start turning people in, we will give you enough food, enough money to take care of your entire village, right? So of course, this led to a ton of profiling and people being captured or imprisoned who never should have been. Right. So there were a lot of people in the surrounding areas, the surrounding countries who were turning in people in Afghanistan. And these were students, reporters, hundreds of people. You may have gotten some who were also involved with the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Yeah. But 
there was not really any way to know because it was just hundreds of people, right? Yeah, it's just citizens calling in and right. telling you what and we they were think like, they know. Cool, we're going to take them all. And we had more people than we knew what to do with. And we needed to figure out what to do with these people because we didn't want to release them if any of them could be terrorists. And right. until we figured that out, we were like, okay, what do we do? So politically, the Bush administration didn't think that it was a good look to build a giant prison in Afghanistan. They were like, right. okay, we want to remain on good terms with the Afghan people. So we don't want to build a giant prison there to hold these people. It also wasn't a good look with to have everything, it in the U.S. Right, with everything we just said uh, about the way that Americans were feeling specifically towards Muslim people or Middle Eastern people to relocate them to some of our kind of max security prisons here in the United States. Uh, so because of that, you know, we settled on Cuba. Yeah. So the U.S. government set up Guantanamo Bay detention camp in 2002. And this was a quote from that documentary. They said, the State Department were told to look for the legal equivalent of outer space. And that's what Gu- Guantanamo Bay was meant to be, a place where no law applied. Ooh. Right. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So the detainees were brought over mostly from Afghanistan. And when you look at these pictures, first of all, don't. (laughs) But if you do, any of these pictures, if you search Guantanamo Bay... It is some of the most upsetting stuff you're going to see. Yeah. So there are pictures of the way that they were transported on these planes. They are transported strapped to each other. So they are strapped down to each other upright with a lot of sensory deprivation items on. So like hoods, goggles, they can't see. So they're coming over because we were told, and you can watch the footage, like we were told these were the worst of the worst. These were absolutely terrorists. These were absolutely people who wanted to murder Americans, right? Right. So we had to take the utmost precautions with these people. What, so they didn't know where they were going? Like that seems to be a bit, they're on a fucking plane. Like what, I don't know. We treated them like cargo. Like that's really what it looks like. Like, They look like they're being treated like cargo. And then there is video footage of them being led out of the plane and into the facility, again, shackled to each other, wearing hoods. Um, And meanwhile, the U.S. military, again, is doing its best to convince us that these people are are, are here to kill us. So our, yeah, our it hearts It kind of reminds hardened. me of like the uh, internment camps a little bit. And that's what I was going to say that I forgot where it's like, I wonder if the reason why they didn't want it on U.S. soil was so maybe that it wouldn't have the same 
connotation as the internment camps in World War II. I think it was because they wanted to be able to do what they wanted with these prisoners. But without it being, because I feel like there is something about it being on American soil where it is. There's oversight. They didn't want oversight. Yeah, but it is like it's more obviously like your fault when it's on American soil. You know what I mean? So I feel like there's almost this like detachment that they have by sending these people to Cuba instead of having it be actually on, you know, the United States. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just less, it was, it was less easy to monitor yes, what was happening there. Exactly. You know, exactly. Americans wouldn't have to be like aware of it all the time if it's in another country. We don't right, think about it. Right. No, yeah. we don't. I mean, and it, we saw the footage and we saw the pictures, but again, it but was. We were told that they were terrorists and the worst of the worst. And like I said in our last episode, it should upset you that our grief and our fear and in the aftermath of this horrible trauma, this horrible tragedy, this horrible trauma that happened to all of us was exploited yeah. immediately. And this is part of that. Like yeah. we were, yes, such we, saw, we saw yeah. the pictures of these people being held in pens like animals. It looked like kennels. But, but at the same time, that they are the worst of the worst. And that's what we're hearing constantly. Then that's what you would want. to. If somebody truly is the worst of the worst, then maybe that would seem like justice. You know what I mean? So that's why people weren't automatically outraged because at the time we were buying into so much of what was being told to us because all of us were at such a vulnerable I would hope that we eventually get to a place as a culture and as a society where we have enough empathy where even if it is the worst of the worst, you shouldn't look at that and feel nothing. Like you just shouldn't. Honestly, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm very anti-death penalty. Like there's a lot of, you know, things with that where I feel like even if a person has done horrible things, they are still human. Your level of empathy should be higher than that. That's just how I feel. Yeah, I agree. So because we were fighting this abstract idea, which was terrorism and not a nation that wore a uniform. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't mean to cut you off here, but that's like one of the criticisms with calling it the war on terror in total. Uh, There is this guy who is a linguist. His name is uh, George Lakoff, who argues that there literally cannot be a war on terror since terror is an abstract noun. He says terror cannot be destroyed by weapons or signing a peace treaty. A war on terror has no end. It has no end and allows you to do horrific things because, as we see here, because we were not fighting a nation with a uniform, the Bush administration made the decision that the Geneva Convention did not apply to the detainees, who they refused to call prisoners because yeah. they didn't want them to be looked at as prisoners of war. Right. So they had no rights under international law because right. we weren't fighting a country. We were fighting an idea. Yeah. And so there was a loophole there where we didn't have to treat them the way that we would normally have to, we didn't have to offer up the same human rights that we would have to offer up any other prisoner of war. Right. right? Oh, they God, didn't have access to lawyers. They didn't have access of any kind of due process that at all. That is such bullshit It's absolute me. bullshit. And can you imagine, uh, mm, can you imagine being on that plane with a hood and shackled, no. brought to a place, be like, sorry, you don't get a lawyer, you don't get that. I mean, I, that's basically what our borders are like right now, but it just, to think about being in their shoes causes me so much no, anxiety. And, and just, 
most of these people, and that's what they were saying, a lot of these people who were at these detention camps, they were mentally prepared for rabid dogs because mm-hmm. of the way that it had been framed to them. And what they said was, these people are sheep farmers, right? Like the mo- the majority of the people here are normal people, yeah. right? And they're being held in these conditions and these mm. inmates were tortured and it was encouraged by the Bush administration to torture them. Yeah. And they didn't call it torture. They called it enhanced interrogation techniques. Yes. Yep. So some of these techniques included forced 24-hour nudity, 24-hour-a-day light, 24-hour-a-day cold, 24-hour-a-day darkness, waterboarding. And it's some of the most disgusting stuff I've ever seen in in the pictures that you will see. Yeah. But then you have the banality of evil on the other side of it where you are you are hearing and watching Bush administration officials now talk about this and underplay how bad it was. Yeah. Which is also really gross. Like I was watching Bush admin members try and justify what they were doing by saying things like but you could only water you could only waterboard them in this very particular way. You could only hit them in this very specific way. I'm sorry. And hey, we never shoved fing- we never shoved needles up their up their fingernails or into their eyeballs, so it was fine. It wasn't that bad. F- right? Okay. Let's let's be done with corporal punishment. Torture, all of those things. I get it you want to get information out of these but people. But it doesn't work. No. Can we like bring some psychologists in here and figure out how to work with these like possibly maybe psychopathic people what is the best way to get information out of them like why do we so the cia inspector general in 2004 came to the conclusion that they were unable to prove that one imminent threat that a single imminent threat was disrupted because of the enhanced interrogation techniques Mm -hmm. john mccain who was a prisoner of war vet himself would go on to say that these techniques provided very little useful intelligence to help track down anyone involved in 9-11 or to prevent new attacks yep in fact he felt that torturing the detainees only provoked our enemies and Mm -hmm. could potentially have consequences in the future which right because they're like you're hurting more of our people we're going to be even more mad at you and fight back even that much more heavily right and And he also made a good point in terms of like, hey, we still have our guys over there. Like what happens? He was a prisoner of war, right? What happens if a member of the Taliban gets one of our guys? Yeah. What happens if they're prisoners? Eye for an eye. Right? Like it's it's so counterintuitive. And we didn't even get any real information like that's that's kind of the thing is like we got little things here and there that they said came out of this so mad right but still the bush administration stood by their decision they said that it was the right move at the time since inmates were detained indefinitely without trial and several detainees were tortured this camp is considered to be a major breach of human rights by amnesty international well fuck yeah so most prisoners of guantanamo bay were eventually freed without ever being charged with any crime and were transferred to other countries today though 40 men remain in prison And almost three quarters of them have never been criminally charged. They're known as, quote, forever prisoners and are being held indefinitely. Are you fucking kidding me? No, they're still. Can we we go there there. now and break them out? Because what the fuck? Well, look at. I mean, and that's the thing. 20 years, Keegan. Yeah. 20 years. And and they have not been charged. We had a whole ass two terms of President Barack Obama in that time period. Why are they still there? Oh, my God. That is so upsetting. Yeah, it's incredibly upsetting. 
You know what else is upsetting? Let's break them out. <laughs> let's break them you out. You and I, let's break them out of Guantanamo Bay. We got this, you girl. Know. We got this. <laughs> Another thing that is deeply upsetting, because yeah. I just feel like the hits are going to keep coming right yeah. through the end of this episode, okay? This is not fun times through no, the end of this not. episode. This is not laughs, fun laughs, good times. When people think about the war on terror, they think about the war in Afghanistan, but yeah. they also think about the war, the in, war Iraq. in Iraq. So, yep. which I just got to say was so confusing to me as a child when Afghanistan seemed to be our primary target and then all of a sudden we were in another yeah, country. Same. In my head as a child, I was like, oh, well, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were friends. They were in on it together because I was a kid. Well, I didn't fucking know. You it's know not I mean? your fault. They straight up said that. Yeah. They straight up said that. Yeah. So... Pretty much right away, the Bush administration was trying to use the AUMF, which is the Authorization for Use of Military Force Against Terrorists Mm -hmm. Act, um, as an excuse to go after Saddam Hussein, despite the fact that he had nothing to do with 9-11. No, he had nothing to do with 9-11, but Iraq itself had been listed listed as a state sponsor of terrorism by the U.S. since 1990 when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. So I think it was more of like an opportunistic thing because it's a war on terror. It's not a war on Afghanistan or anything like that. This was their moment to be able to go after Saddam Hussein for what what he did to Kuwait in 1990. Right. They definitely wanted to go after him because of that. And also the reason why we went into Saudi Arabia after he went into Kuwait, after Saddam went into Kuwait, was to protect our oil interests. Yes. So there was absolutely that motivation here as well. Yeah, we, it was we, for fucking money. Yeah, we wanted to protect our oil interests. So President Bush spoke with Donald... Wait, nope. On the day of the attacks, Security of Defense Donald Rumsfeld asked his aides for, quote, best info fast, judge whether good enough hit Saddam Hussein at the same time. So it was like a short message, right? He was basically saying like, hey, we need to figure out a a motivation to get us into Iraq. Yeah. With all the chaos that was going on in 9-11, he was like, hey, we got to get in there. I see an opening for us to get into Iraq. How can we spin this in order to get us in there? Like immediately from from word go, right? Yeah. So months later, they decided they were going to visit Bush at his ranch in Texas to discuss moving into Iraq. So President Bush spoke with Rumsfeld on the 21st of November and instructed him to conduct a a confidential review of a war plan to invade Iraq. So Rumsfeld met with the general, Tommy Franks, and they were trying to figure out, they're basically like, okay, Let's brainstorm how to start possible justifications for entering into a war with Iraq. Right. Uh, So after that, so they made this connection between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda, which didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> like there, there wasn't one. Yeah. Uh, they kind of just decided that there was one. And in fact, the executive assistant director of the FBI, Dale Watson, told the Bush administration that there was no relationship between Al Qaeda and Iraq. Right. But Bush announced to the American people that there was. Like yeah. you can watch his State of the Union where he says that. So he began formally making his case to the international community for the invasion of Iraq on September 12th, 2002. So a year after the September 11th attacks. Yep. Colin Powell gave a speech indicating that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq 
and that there were connections between bin Laden and Hussein. The only information that they had to corroborate this story was a tortured Guantanamo Bay detainee <sighs> who later admitted to lying under torture. Oh my God. Okay. I didn't even mention this earlier, but if you look at like false confessions in the US and just like bad police interrogations where it's like they're without food and water and break for 13 hours, they're being interrogated and threatened and all this stuff. Of course, you're going to give any information that you think this person could possibly want to make you stop being fucking tortured. Yeah, absolutely. So this is when we kind of start to see a split between the United States and NATO because everybody was kind of on our side up until this point. But the British government found no evidence that Iraq possessed nuclear weapons or any other weapons of mass destruction. Uh, And France didn't either. They were like, this seems weird. Unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and... The UK agreed to stand by us, but France and Germany were like, I don't think so. Yeah. And while there had been almost unanimous support for the war in Afghanistan, there was a lot of criticism, rightly so, for the war in Iraq. And this is when we start to kind of see the anti-war movement start to ramp up in the United States. Yeah. And people like Bill Clinton and the Pope were both saying, hey, military action is not a good idea in Iraq. But still, in July of 2002, we were like, you know what? We're going to go ahead and enter anyway. Uh, And listen, nobody is arguing that Saddam Hussein is like a nice guy. Like, we know that he's like a piece of shit dictator. He's a big ass piece of shit. Like, no, no, no. He's not a great person. But I feel like it was super opportunistic to be like, oh, another Middle Eastern country that we want to, you know, invade. And because it's the war on terror... Everybody in America, like civilians, are going to be fine with it because if we tell them that there is a threat, they're going to be fine with it. So it really is so clear, especially now seeing the weird message that that guy sent to his people about finding a connection to Saddam Hussein. It really goes to show you how there really was no like factual basis in that war. And Bush and Donald Rumsfeld both admitted later on that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Like they were like, oh yeah, whoopsie. There was nothing there. I mean, and that is kind of how it was framed. Like you watch Saddam Hussein, you watch these, they wanted to protect our interests. Like that's what I mean. And that, but yeah, that's really what it was. It, It had nothing to do with protecting the people of Iraq. And that's kind of what they started to say was that like, Hey, we did this because we were trying to protect the people of Iraq from Saddam Hussein. And it's like, no, you weren't. That's not why you went in. We know that's not why you went in, but it was optically put that way. I mean, do you remember the day that his statue went down? Right. The PR machine worked overtime to make us all feel like proud patriotic Americans. Uh, Of course. Like we took him down. We saved the Iraqi civilians and all this stuff. Right. So, but I mean, when you watch videos of Bush talk about this moment, about like, hey, would you have done anything differently if you had known that there weren't any weapons of mass destruction? He's kind of like, eh, difficult to say. Mistakes were made, basically. But his whoopsie cost more than 4,400 U.S. service members lives and approximately 200,000 Iraqi citizens who died in that war. And I think this is finally when people outside of the uh, liberal hippie Haggerty family started to see that the war on Iraq was actually an issue and not something that we should just be okay with going along with. Yes, absolutely. Like that's 
the war, the anti-war movement really started to speed up at this at this time. Yeah. When like normal people were starting to realize that like this was a really big problem. I always think about the John Mayer song waiting on the world to change. Uh, and it was just kind of when it became more part of like popular culture to be against the war where before I think if you were outwardly against the war, it was something that was like seen as being unpatriotic or un-American where suddenly we were seeing more people uh, showing their patriotism as being anti-war. Right. And it also had a really adverse effect both both domestically and overseas because it reinforced, like you were saying, it reinforced this idea that bin Laden had been saying all along, which was that the U.S. was going to go into Muslim countries and dominate them and get people killed, yes. which which is, is what, what happened. fucking did. And then there were the pictures from Abu Ghraib. So we already talked about Guantanamo. Abu Ghraib prison, if, which was a prison that we had put up in Iraq. Yeah. It is... If you haven't seen these images, I would not Google them because it is some of the most upsetting. It is United States service members posing with tortured bodies, um, humiliating, uh, imprisoned Iraqis. It's gross it's it's very it's very upsetting and so the the american people are starting to get it's already an unpopular war we already don't know why we're there people are dying and these are the images that we're getting and then additionally because we had two wars going on at once which was very confusing yeah we weren't able to focus on afghanistan so we went in we overturned the taliban there was relative peace in the country from like 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. But then we shifted our focus to Afghanistan or, or shifted our focus to Iraq, which left the Afghanistan people high and dry yeah. and allowed the Taliban to start reclaiming areas, <sighs> which was horrible. Why did we fuck up so badly? I don't know, but we really, really did. It and makes things- me really like, well, shouldn't we have smarter people in charge? Well, I guess not, because when oh. when looking at the cost of this, too, you know, there was someone breaking down on that documentary, <sighs> yeah. kind of the cost of everything and how much money was wasted. Oh. Millions, billions of dollars. Oh, yeah. Let's real quick. Let's talk about the cost, because this is fucking ridiculous. So according to the Cost of War Project at Brown University, the war on terror will have cost eight trillion dollars for operations between 2001 and 2022 plus 2.2 trillion dollars future costs for veterans care over the next 30 years in direct spending the u.s states department of defense reports spending 1547 trillion 1547 trillion dollars from 2001 to february of 2020 Right. And trillion and trillion. When you hear them talk about what the money was spent on Madigan, it is it is it's so when you know that this country has a real lack of funding for the shit that fucking matters for education and healthcare and underprivileged communities and a massive unhoused population. Yet our military industrial complex is sitting fucking mwah, pretty. On stuff that had to be thrown away. Like, like they talk about it and they bought planes that didn't work and, and had to our, immediately be scrapped. 
And yet our veterans are not properly cared for They're not for cared either. for. Like, that's the thing that blows my mind is the, the, the amount of money that we have put into something that was so senseless, so fucking stupid, that really did absolutely nothing, that killed so many Americans, that have put so many other Americans into complete distress. I mean, the number of soldiers that came back with PTSD is astronomical i'll say this before we recorded this episode i watched an episode of of that um documentary series turning point yeah on on netflix and um i I come from a military family yeah again my dad my cousins they've all been deployed multiple times multiple deployments yeah watching watching soldiers talk about their experiences and what it was like to watch just one watch half of their battalion die yeah because of because they stepped on a bomb yep or or something like that and two watch the idea because we were so brainwashed in this country about what we were trying to do mm-hmm. so watching them kind of grapple with the fact that they went there because they were idealistic and yeah. they thought maybe they were doing a good thing. They were yeah. defending their company, their company, kind of. Kind they of, were yeah, defending their country. Their, their country and they were they were rescuing these people. Yeah. And that's what they thought they were going to do. And Not everybody, they, but yeah. a good portion and of them. And then when they realized what was actually happening, I mean, I mentioned the guy that I dated when I was younger who was part of the military And he had told me during that time that there had not been one year since he'd been back in the United States that he hadn't had one or more friends of his commit suicide as a result of their PTSD from the war. Yeah. And it is such, and that's the thing that I think that when we go into war, we don't think about what it's actually doing to our citizens as well. And when we're going into a war, I mean, I think it was very similar to Vietnam where these people are like, no, we don't want to be fighting this. We don't understand it. And there's so much trauma involved. And yet we're, we're throwing all this money at this problem, yet we're not actually able to help the people that we're defending our country. And that's what's so upsetting. Even if they have spent $2.2 trillion or however amount of money they've spent on these veterans, it's still not enough to care for them after what they've been through. And that's fucked up. Well, and it's still not... And like, I come back to the same thing, and this is where I end up when we when we talk about... This is the longest running war in United States history. And we we talk about, was it worth it? Yeah. And it wasn't worth it for no. anybody. Like, that's the thing. It wasn't worth it for anyone. It wasn't worth it for the people of Afghanistan or the people of Iraq or our people. It wasn't worth it for anybody. Yeah. And when you hear people talk about it now. It put us 20 years of hell. Right. And you, you hear Mike, Michael Flynn talk about this or you hear like a lot of the generals who were in charge in varying stages throughout this process they all say we were kind of winging it. We had yeah. no plan. We had no exit strategy. We put ourselves and our nation and other nations through this massive trauma yeah. where tons of people died for what? 
Yeah. For Especially nothing. now. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening now, even though I'm sure a lot of our listeners also listen to our news episodes. It's things that we've been talking about a lot lately. But when... Um, at the end of the Trump administration, the beginning of the Biden administration, they were discussing bringing our troops back from um, the countries they were in and back to the United States, ending the war, all this kind of stuff. And there was this push to bring everybody back. I think originally it was like August 30th that they want to bring everyone back. And then Biden had this whole announcement that by September 11th of 2021, the 20 year anniversary, everyone will have been, you know, evacuated from these countries and things like that. And we've seen the disastrous outcome of pulling away too soon or incorrectly or whatever, you know, you see it as. And that's what's frustrating to me because I've been wanting this war to end for so long. And I think there's this idea of once we get the troops out of there, it's over, it's done with, we don't have to think about it anymore, except for the fact that in this day and age, everything is so heavily documented by everybody's cell phones and we are able to see the complete devastation that is happening in Afghanistan and its capital of Kabul at the airport. We've seen some really, really disturbing images that really are quite parallel to 9-11. I mean, I think of the of the people hanging onto the airplane the same way as I think of the people who jumped out of the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And to see it end in a way that had such destruction it ended the same way it began there was no point of this that was peaceful there's no part of this that was handled with care and correctly because I feel like honestly right now our administration was so obsessed with bringing everybody home and being able to say that they did that that they weren't thinking about the fact that the Taliban was gaining more control and that they're back in power. And that they so have really, been steadily for a long time. Because it's like, like what you said, when we went to Iraq, we started leaving the door open for things to happen in Afghanistan where I wonder if we had really just focused on one thing. And I don't believe that war is the right way to accomplish what we wanted to do because if you wanted peace, war is not how you create peace in other countries. So to me... It's frustrating that it's like, oh, no, we're going to go in there. We're going to help them. We're going to rebuild their government. We're going to do all these things. But it's it's a fallacy to think that that's ever what we really wanted. I think it's that that's the problem. It's completely not what we wanted, you know? but it's what they wanted to say. But they can't even say that because now with, with no thought to what is happening in their home country, we are pulling the rug out. From underneath everybody. Well, we, we've always done that. We're I, good at that. We're 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 be- like, listen, the United States government doesn't care about you. No, like that's kind but of that was the whole fucking that's but what they, they lied. Telling, but they I lied. know. And that's what's so fucking frustrating to me. <laughs> but they lied. Like, I think clinging to this notion of like, but they said this thing. It's like, but they lied. Like, I know. But come on. Like the thing that pisses me off the most is that once Biden saw the shit that was going down, could they have said, OK, maybe we're not going to have maybe we're not going to hold on to this symbolic goal to have everybody out by September 11th. But, but the problem is... Do you is, not fucking care about anybody besides I think the problem Americans? is... I think the problem is with Biden, with, with all of them, I think the problem is you have decades of 
no plan. Like, I don't know who's going to be able to do this right at this point. I mean, because how, how do you, but how do you after pulling people once you realize that the Taliban is taking over? But what's what's going to be the right way, Madigan? Like the way that it's done now, I'm like, I don't know what the right way is now. I mean, honestly, like you got yourself into this mess. You fucking finish it. Like if you started a war against the Taliban and you now see it, they're taking over. Like maybe fucking do something about that now. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know because I'm just like, war was the answer in 2001. Why is war not the answer now? And I'm not saying war is the answer at all, but when you've started something you better fucking finish it but there was no plan to finish it and there hasn't been a plan to finish it for 20 years that's what makes no fucking sense they're like we're just gonna pull the troops and now the people of afghanistan are fucking fucked again and that's what's so frustrating to me because nothing was accomplished and it was interesting to see and you know this was a muhajadeen leader so i mean a (laughs) a militant extremist leader so take what he says with a grain of salt but i do think that this was true he said what's the difference between the occupation of the soviets and what's happening with the united states in my country right now yep you don't want to call it an occupation but what's the difference you called us freedom freedom fighters back then and you call us terrorists now because we're against you Yep. But you're here. You're destroying our infrastructure because that's what's happening now. Yeah. Because what's happening is the people of Afghanistan are being stuck in the crossfire between the Taliban and United States soldiers where we're just blowing shit up like left and right. It's not just the Taliban. It's us, too. Mm -hmm. And it's like. I don't know, like at this point, and that's what makes me want to cry. And that's what makes me so frustrated because I don't. I don't know that there is an answer. There isn't because we fucked up 20 years ago. That's the thing. And that's what makes me so And we fucked up before that. Mad. Yeah. It's like if if we had responded to these attacks in another way. And I'm not saying that I know what the other way would be. I'm not saying that I have the right answers. That's not my expertise. I am saying maybe don't don't go off of pure emotion. Yes. Like, well, that's the thing is that I feel like, but because that was what the country was asking for at this time was retaliation for these attacks. And that gave anyone in politics the okay to do whatever they wanted to do. And that was my issue as a nine-year-old. And that's my issue now as a 29-year-old was the reason that war doesn't solve anything. It's the same reason why we say an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. If somebody attacks you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to come back and do the same thing. And I'm not saying I have the right answer to how we should have responded to this. That is not in my wheelhouse. I'm not, I don't have knowledge in that exactly, but I wish there was a way that we could have responded to the 9-11 attacks that wouldn't have destroyed millions if maybe billions of lives within the past 20 20 years well and if you factor in and i know that this is on a on a smaller scale but if you factor in the reverberations that it has caused across families we talked in our mini episode i, I read a 9-11 story and we talked about the way that it changed the way we consumed news which changed the way that we identified as Americans yeah. and led us to this point and, and caused us. these divides and these rifts in families. My dad is broken. Yeah. From, and, and it's a direct, it, you can draw a direct line. Yeah. Like between 
9-11 to his deployments, his several deployments, but that's to who thing, he is right now. As you can see, like, that makes sense to me. Right. When you say that you come from a military family and your father was in the military and we now, you know, you've discussed a lot on the show about your father's views and, you know, your relationship with him at the time right now. And I think that and he's, he's physically really, broken, too, because, by the way, the government does not take care of its veterans, physically exactly. or mentally. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. It's just, it makes sense. As heartbreaking as it is, and for people who have loved ones who have gone through this and you want them to see the light, it's so incredibly frustrating, but we, we brought this upon ourselves. And how do you convince people that their trauma and this thing that they've devoted their life to you for all this time means nothing you can't they have and that's the thing that's the most frustrating whenever you're dealing with anybody who is struggling with mental health issues or addiction or brainwashing or whatever you're whatever you want to call it there is no way to bring somebody to the light it has to be on their own and I think that's the thing that is so polarizing for people who have watched their loved ones go down this path of self-destruction really that's so frustrating because you can only lead them to the water you can't make them drink you know you have to wait for them to be able to see the light for themselves and as somebody who has gone through trauma and so many other things and probably a lot of mental gymnastics too to convince themselves that what they're doing is good and right and defending their country I can understand why people would become broken and that's what's so upsetting to me as well is that there's I don't know how to repair that you know I don't know if we can repair it and I I think that that's the thing that like this doing prep for this episode made me very emotional because there are no winners here. No, like everybody lost. Everybody's losing. And I don't know how we get out of it. Even right now, I don't know how we get out of it. Well, I think, I think what we did is we just ended it and we're walking away and we're wiping our hands clean of it. I think that's the way that it's ending. And it's unfortunate because I, I hope that there are charitable organizations who are working their asses off to be able to help these people and support them in some way. But honestly, at this point, I think that what our government is doing is wiping their hands clean of this whole problem and walking away. Um, before we end this episode, I want to remember the lives that were lost during this war between 363,939 and 887,072 civilians were killed post 9-11 in Afghanistan. Which is a huge gap. Like, we're like, we don't know. Somewhere in this range. I mean, it's like an over $200,000 dollar. 2,000 people range, yeah, but many more also died due to related effects of war such as water loss and disease. Total Americans killed during the war on terror, including military and civilians, is 10,008, with 7,008 of them being killed U.S. troops. The United States Department of Veterans Affairs had diagnosed 200,000 American veterans with PTSD since 2001. Yeah, so I know that we said we were going to close with this. We've already answered this question. Was it worth it? No. 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 It wasn't worth it from a monetary perspective. It wasn't worth it. Um, we didn't do good. Yeah. Uh, not not lasting good anyway. There may no. have been moments of, of relative peace that we were able to uh, give the Afghanistan people. 
after we've already disrupted their homeland. Yeah. Um, but. And what is, what is this going to do for our future? When we spent 20 years in these countries causing. And their future. And havoc. And, and their future. Havoc. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Because that's the thing is that these radicalized groups have their reasons for being upset with Americans and that was why 9-11 happened to begin with and now we have a whole other generation of people who know nothing other than war and well, the US troops being part of their lives and so I can understand how that would radicalize more and more people yes. are we creating yes. more and more opportunity for other terrorist attacks hands to happen? down yes 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 I they talked about it uh, in the documentary that I watched but yeah, of course, yeah. because we made them more by, mad. And yeah, by the end, it's not like a lot of people in Afghanistan were super stoked that there were American troops there. And because of that and because of things like Abu Ghraib and uh, that, that happened at the time, it pushed it radicalized a lot of people. It pushed more people into the Taliban. Yeah. You know, so. And can you blame them? Honestly, like, yes, there is a lack of understanding on how someone can be radicalized. But at the same time, if you are raised with certain beliefs, just like United, just like us in the U.S., you know, the people who've gone to QAnon and anti and whatever, you know, it's like radicalization is not rational. Right. But there's a reason still. Sure. Yeah. There's always a catalyst. Right. right? It doesn't mean that it's like a rational reason, but there's a reason for it. And I feel like we've Mm -hmm. almost been like giving people reasons to fucking hate us and to want to retaliate against us again. And the Taliban is just as powerful now as it was 20 years Mm -hmm. ago. So what are we going to do about that? Fucking nothing. Nothing. Well, this is the most depressed I think I've ever been at the end of an episode we've done. Uh, Sorry. It was meaningless. (laughs) It was so fucking meaningless. And nine-year-old Madigan is telling fucking everyone I told you so. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a very complicated issue. It's not complicated. It's very straightforward. But but it's complicated. It's, it's emotionally in, in complicated emotions. because because it's all so painful. Well, like think that's about, that's what it is. Think it, about our two episodes that we just did. exactly. Like it, the first episode was very much about our trauma, our experiences, our emotions. The second episode has been so much about what we've inflicted upon other people, and, and that's it's why all it's so, so painful. And that's why it's so complicated, right? Because it's not just about us and our experiences. It's about people that we've never met across the world that we know are in torment and, because yeah. of us. So here's here's the takeaway, I guess, if we have to try and leave this on any kind of positive adjacent or any sort note, of moral note is that loss of life especially on this kind of massive scale is painful. Yeah. It's traumatic whether that's here with the bombing of the world trade centers or it's overseas with hundreds of thousands of civilians and service members, probably just teenage boys and girls who went in right after high school with an idealistic view that they were doing something good. Yeah. Regardless of who it is, 
it's not fucking worth it. It's no. never fucking worth it. And you're affecting more than the person who dies. You're affecting the people who loved them and cared for them. And we are potentially radicalizing more and more people. And I think that is, that's blood on our fucking hands at that point. If there is another terrorist attack from that area or anything like that is our fucking fault. Well, and how many domestic terrorists did we create because of the environment that we created here in, exactly. in the United States? Exactly. Because of the situations yeah. that we found ourselves in. Like, it's just, <sighs> there cannot be a war on terror because you cannot fight an idea. Nope. All you're doing is giving it attention, which is watering it and watching it grow. Like, yep. that's it. So yep. that's kind of my final takeaway is just the war on terror doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense. None of it ever made sense. I I really hope that, you know, because I know that we have mostly listeners that are younger than us, I am hoping that our discussions of the timeline and the different things that happened are helpful to those who maybe weren't alive or aware of everything that was going on or to people who weren't reading the news at that time and things like that. I hope that... If anything, our discussions in this episode can help the next generation possibly make better decisions. And I'm not saying we have that power as a podcast to be able to change the next generation, but I'm hoping the more that this war is discussed and we are able to dissect its problems and people smarter than me can think of better solutions, that's the only positive that we can possibly get from the numerous mistakes that mm -hmm. we've made is that hopefully we would have learned something from this experience so that generations to come can make better choices. Yeah. I mean, it would be really nice if we could just stop killing each other. It would be great. War uh, makes no sense to me. It's war it's never going to happen. We've been at war since the beginning of time. We'll be at war till the end of time. But it would but be really... It would be really chill if we could just, just leave stop. everyone alone. Yeah, if we could just cut it out, that'd leave be great. Alone. Yeah. Okay. Keep to yourself. <laughs> Keep to yourself. Oh my gosh. Well, this was a very emotional couple weeks for us. Yes. It was definitely very heavy. Both of us felt a lot of things. Uh, we encouraged you last week to uh, reach out to us with your 9-11 stories. I would also encourage you to reach out with us with just any thoughts and feelings that you had on this episode. It's not healthy to keep it bottled in. One of my very favorite things about this show is the communication that we have with all of you. So if these two episodes have evoked any sort of feelings or emotions or memories or anything in you and you feel like you want to share it with us and with the rest of the listeners, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us at angry neighborhood feminist. We truly do learn so much from all of you who write into us. And I do feel that our listeners also, you know, reap so many benefits from hearing your stories besides just the two of ours. We have a Facebook Oh, yes. Real quickly, uh, before you go into the final spiel, I yeah. do want to say that uh, we are coming up quick on my wedding and your girl is overwhelmed. Yes. Uh, I am I, I'm hanging on by a thread here. Yes. Uh, and because of that, uh, we have made the decision. Madigan has so graciously allowed me to uh, make the decision to not put out full length episodes until after 
uh, the yes, wedding. Because we care more about Keegan than we do about content. Right, I'm a, everybody? I'm, we love her. I am dangerously close to a panic attack. Yes. So we are... Uh, well, that's the thing. We would never encourage any of you to go... Uh, beyond what your psyche and your abilities are at the moment. So I wouldn't want to ask anything else of my co-host. Thank so you. So if she needs to take a break, Thank I you. say take as long and a I, break as you need to. I didn't want to do it, uh, but I just feel like I, I think I will lose my mind if I don't. So right. And we, we don't want that. We and are we going also to... want your wedding to be a very, very happy day. Thank you. And <laughs> we are going to continue to put out What's in the News episodes uh-huh. every week. Uh, so you will get those, of course. Yes. But I did want to let you know in case you're like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, that's that's what's going on. Yeah, it'll just be a couple weeks. The yeah. countdown is... We'll be back. We're going on. She gets married August, or August, October 2nd. So we'll be back after that. But yes, thank you for reminding me and reminding the listeners that that is happening. Everybody send positive vibes to Keegan. We Thanks. love her. We only want good <laughs> things for her in the world. All right. So back to my spiel. If you're on Facebook, go to our business page and rate and review us. You can go to the group page and chat with the other listeners. I love all the things that you guys share. I love all the things that you all share. Keep it coming. I adore it. Um, I am still keeping close tabs on those reviews on Apple Podcasts. I see how many of you listen. I've seen how many reviews there are. So if you're looking for a reason to leave us a positive review, this is it. If you haven't done so, please go to your Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review and a quick sentence about why you love us. It is the best way that you can possibly support Keegan and I, and it truly means so much to us to also see your lovely positive words about our show. All right. With all that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. Bye. So you've heard of Florida Man, but what about Florida Chupacabra? That's right, the urban legend is real and lurking in the Everglades in the new horror comedy show from Realm, Low Life. Low Life follows a Chupacabra exterminator in South Florida who becomes unlikely allies with a marine biology student when a standard house call goes horribly wrong. It looks like there's a new monster in their midst, but there's more than one secret hiding in the swamp. Low Life is a funny, twisty mystery that also has some pretty scathing commentary on corporate elitism and eco-fascism. So you're in for a wild ride and some razor-toothed chupacabras. Listen and subscribe to Low Life wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at realm.fm.